Join us at our annual conferences in London, Florida and Sydney to learn everything you need to know about ITAM in the cloud era. For more details, head to itassetmanagement.net forward slash events. Welcome to the ITAM Review Podcast, news, reviews and resources for ITAM, SAM and software licensing professionals. Welcome to the ITAM Review Podcast. My name is Martin Thompson from the ITAM Review and today I'm delighted to invite Guy Tritton onto the podcast. Guy uh, very kindly spoke at our UK conference in Twickenham last year and was very well received by um, everyone at the conference. So I was keen to get uh, Guy on the podcast and in particular uh, cover some of the topics that are, that are happening in the, um, the ITAM industry at the moment. Um, Guy is a, a barrister based in the UK working for Hogarth Chambers and his focus is on IP law which as I understand it Guy includes high-tech hardware software apps and services uh, so, so welcome to the podcast, Guy. Um, could I start by saying what is a bar- for those of us that are not from a legal background? What is a barrister compared to, for example, a solicitor or, 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 a, or a lawyer? Uh, that's a good question, Martin. Um, barristers traditionally, the people who appear in court, were the ones who wear the wigs and gowns. Um, we tend to do the advocacy. We tend to be specialists. Most people will be familiar with barristers from TV programs, the ones who do the cross-examinations, uh, the speeches, and that. A solicitor is, is traditionally the lawyer, a different type of lawyer, who interfaces with the public. Traditionally, the public instruct the solicitor, and the solicitor, when they need advocacy services or specialist advice services, will instruct the barrister. Think of it like uh, a general practitioner, a doctor you go to see, he diagnoses your illness, it may require surgery, and then the doctor will refer you to a specialist surgeon. So that's the traditional model. However, nowadays, um, the barristers are allowed, if they've done a public access scheme, to directly contract with uh, the, the public, businesses, customers, whoever. Uh, And many of us, including myself, uh, have undergone the public access scheme, which allows us to do this. The advantage of this is that we can give very specialist advice. Uh, We tend to know our law very well, and we can give it without having to go through the intermediary of a solicitor. As a result, I now uh, am used almost like a sort of in-house counsel uh, by a number of uh, IT tech companies to provide a a wide range of legal services, including uh, IP advice uh, and contract, commercial contract advice, uh, as well as wider wider aspects. And the reason they'd come to you rather than a solicitor is because you would have more specialist expertise on the front line. Is that right? That's true to a certain extent. It's not to say that some solicitors don't have specialist expertise, but generally, particularly for SME companies, that specialist expertise 
tends to be focused in big city firms or, or, or very, extent, very expensive firms. Uh, barristers work for themselves. We have no atriums. We have no huge buildings to support. So we're able to give very good advice for a reasonable price. And that has considerable attraction to many customers who are SMEs or not substantial companies. In particular, some people like myself, we work on a quarterly retainer, which allows the, the business to budget for legal expenses. Right. And that's what I do with quite a few of my IT customers. So how, how did you become a barrister? Well, how long have you been doing it, first of all? And, and how did you become a barrister in the first place? So um, my educational background is I have a natural science degree. So I have a, a, a technical qualification. I worked for a while as a computer programmer. I worked for a little while in industry. Um, it was in the days when technical people were not valued in the way that they are now. Um, you tended to be put into some back room and, and treated in a rather condescending way. Uh, I, I didn't find that particularly attractive. Uh, my mother was a barrister, and she suggested, why don't I try being a barrister? And, and so I made the swap. I did the change. Uh, had to do some uh, two years of study uh, and actually then became a criminal barrister, um, which I enjoyed thoroughly. Uh, but it was very, very poor pay and very, very long hours. And then I thought, well, why not become a barrister who specializes in tech, tech, the tech field, intellectual property, IT law, uh, and, and made that swap and have been practicing as an intellectual property barrister now for about 20 years. Okay. And our audience is specifically people from typically end users. So they're large corporates and they're, they have a job title of ITAM, SAM or licensing. So they're at the, the business end of a contract. Maybe they're defending an audit or a dispute uh, or they're trying to manage the life cycle of a contract. So what would you typically do without obviously going into specifics, but what would you typically do for them? How would you help them? Well, one quite often has uh, at disputes on contracts uh, between uh, obviously software houses, you know, very large concerns relating to license fees, relating to royalties. And I suppose what I tend to offer and what the customer likes is that it really requires a good understanding of the technology, uh, particularly IT, how it works, uh, as well as a, a keen understanding of the, the legal approach to contracts, which is normally what this comes down to, but also intellectual property law, because behind every license is, of course, uh, a, a copyright in the software, which if you fall outside that license, in essence, you are infringing the copyright. So one brings together one's knowledge of the tech, one's knowledge of tech, particularly IT, being an ex-computer programmer, I understand this very well. Knowledge of contracts, how to interpret them, contract law, and also knowledge of intellectual property, particularly copyright. So um, there's an opinion, which you might not share, but there's an opinion that says that a lot of the software companies at the moment uh, can be, uh, they can, they can um, govern, they can set their own laws they can govern those laws and they can be executioner of that law as well by copyright. And it's very much, the bias is very much in favor of the software publisher. Um, and just to put that in context, um, 
we all respect copyright. We all want people to be paid for what they, they manufacture. And there are people around the world that are deliberately abusing that, and that should be stopped. But there's also there's a, there's a, there's a section of the market whereby they're being that copyright power is maybe being abused a little bit. What's, what's your view on that? Yeah, I, I, don't, I don't consider that software houses, software publishers are judge, jury, and execution of the law. That They plainly aren't. The law is the law, for instance, of this country, of the United Kingdom. It's interpreted by courts, and it's interpreted in a manner in accordance with the law. So I wouldn't say that software houses uh, or software publishers are judged during execution of the law. I think much of the perception of people is really because software publishers are in certain fields very, very strong and have almost a quasi-monopoly position. Um, in certain cases, uh, that will be close to being the truth. I mean, obviously, something like Microsoft Office has, has a, a virtually dominant position. But that's a, that raises a different point, and it may be that, uh, and that is competition law. Uh, and then it may be that there are certain situations when a software publisher is in a very strong position and may be tempted to, or indeed carry out, what would be described as abusive practices. But against that, one has to remember that a reason a software publisher may have become very dominant in a particular field is because they actually provide a service which is far superior and their software products are far superior to um, uh, other software providers. That's not always the case because often, as we know, industries and customers tend to gravitate towards a standard because a standard allows for interchangeability. Microsoft Office is a very good example of that one. There were quite a few other word processor and office suites out there many years ago. Uh, WordPerfect would be a very good example. But in the end, because you're just having to interchange and exchange documents, electronic documents, it's the natural tendency of an industry to gravitate towards a particular standard. That, I think, is what gives power to the software publisher who has, in effect, control over that standard, because that standard that software will be protected by copyright. So I think a lot of the uh, complaints, the gripes and the groans of customers is really more, not so much that they're judged during execution, but they wield a lot of market power because of their dominance or quasi-dominance for a particular software product. Right. Uh, and, and you haven't necessarily got the ability to shift to something else uh, to use your uh, market power or whatever you want to call it, vote for your feet. That, that, that's right. I mean, in, in, in certain cases, people feel they're just forced to use a particular software product. And the suspicion or the, the fear that they have is that as a result, uh, the software publishers' terms and conditions of their licenses tend, tend to be tough onerous uh, and uh, expensive right so the, um, one of the key reasons for getting you on the podcast today guy was I'm really interested in your opinion over a very specific case uh, that's come up recently with SAP versus Diageo um, and and it's it's been it's quite a key concern for a lot of our readers because um, indirect access is, is a growing thing. Um, if you look at all the um, 
buzzwords such as Internet of Things uh, and all of these yeah. Internet-connected devices, basically there's there's a lot more electronic devices that are storing data, uh, manipulating data, and um, sending data over the networks. You know, it could be a, a, a toaster that's collecting something and, and interacting with another system. So it's a big... It's a big thing on the radar, and then this big, uh, this big case with Diageo, which is a huge billion, ten billion pound drinks group, uh, comes up. So not an insignificant company, uh, and they've lost or seemingly seemingly lost the case against um, SAP. What's your what's your view on that case, and and um, maybe if you could also share what I mean, how would it? It's come into the public domain. Uh, it didn't start that way. Obviously, there's probably lots of NDAs and disputes going on for months, if not years, prior to this. Um, what, what's your view on that case? Okay, so uh, the, the Diageo case is a case which fundamentally terms turns on the construction of a license agreement between SAP, the well-known software publisher, and Diageo, it's extremely well-known multinational conglomerate. Uh, the sum being sought uh, was uh, about £54 million pounds in by way of license fees. The, the first thing which I think is it's often quite surprising that a software publisher will take on one of its biggest customers and uh, effectively uh, engage in uh, litigation on the basis that what's often uh, it's often said that one should never sue one's own customer. Uh, it's not good for business. It's not good for PR. So that in itself is quite surprising. Uh, but clearly SAP felt that they were in a strong enough position. Uh, and by that, I mean that Diage was unlikely to go elsewhere and therefore felt comfortable about suing its own customer for a substantial sum of money, although one must remember Diageo is a multi-billion uh, a pound organization. The actual dispute is a sort of thing which is going to be coming more and more common, which is what is the position under license agreements when new methods of access to the software, that is to the SAP uh, ERP software, uh, Start, start happening. Um, I, I mean, in a very sort of very sort of high-level summary of this case, what had been happening was that Diageo had traditionally accessed the SAP ERP software via its call centers. So what would happen is a customer of Diageo would phone up the call center about an order it wished to place, about which it wanted goods from from Diageo. And then the call center customer, sorry, the call center operator would then uh, access the SAP software, uh, make, implement the order, process the order, uh, and then obviously uh, the goods would be uh, supplied to the customer and the SAP software would make various amendments to stock, etc. Most people, I think, are very familiar with the SAP software. What Diageo decided to do to save money, I suspect, was to give customers access directly or indirectly, we'll come on to that, to the SAP software so that they could do their own 
ordering without using call center operators. Uh, and so what they implemented is, is they implemented two uh, software products. Uh, one's called Gen2, and the other one is called Connect. Gen2 is a Salesforce product, which is a CRM product. And Connect is really for customers to manage their business accounts. And this software was interfaced with the SAP software, the ERP, via what's known as a, 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 effectively a software engine called the SAP PI. And, and the real dispute in this case was whether or not when all these people accessed it, so all the customers of Diageo who were accessing the SAP software bypassing the call center, whether or not those customers were permitted under the license to do so, or, or whether or not, in essence, uh, Diageo had to pay a, an extra license fee per user for each of those customers. And obviously, there are going to be thousands of customers, and so therefore there's going to be thousands of extra license fees because the whole SAP license structure is a fee per user. But surely they are, Diageo was innovating somehow. They were trying to put an extra interface and maybe they want to avoid, they, they anticipated the license costs that was coming so they built something else. Or maybe they just wanted something that was less clunky than SAP and they wanted to do something quicker and more agile that fed into SAP. So that it's not like they were, you know, stealing licenses deliberately. Um, so what, how, how, what have they done wrong in their approach? Well, I, what, what's Diageo done wrong? I mean, firstly, I have some sympathy with Diageo, let's be clear. Uh, Diageo had been processing all these orders via its call center operators. So the level of access, the number of times that um, the software, the SAP software is being accessed, shouldn't have changed. And after all, there are two ways of doing it. One, you phone up a call center and saying, can you process my order, please? Or two, you directly access the SAP software. By directly access, I mean via the Gen 2 uh, uh, third-party software um, or, or the Connect third-party software. So the level of access, the amount of time that the SAP software is being accessed doesn't really change. But one of the things that this, the industry has, and, and this is something which is you know, a hot potato debate, is that charging tends to be done on a per user basis. So let's give an example. If I, as one user, access the SAP software a thousand times, my license fee may be, let's say, for sake of just an example, a thousand pounds per annum. But if a thousand users access it once, so you've got the same degree of access, the same amount, suddenly it's a thousand times uh, the license fee per user. So obviously for SAP, the license monies that they receive it is multiplied by a thousand times, even though the level of access, the degree of access of that software uh, ha hasn't actually increased. And I think underlying Diageo's sense of grievance here is that they had set out to uh, implement a, 
a, a sort of more dynamic, more flexible way of ordering, which included customers ordering themselves. And suddenly they found themselves liable to pay 56 million pounds, which, although I don't know the maths, may, may well be more than the saving they were making by allowing customers to access directly the SAP software. In other words, uh, but uh, you know, it may have allowed them to reduce the number of staff in their call centers. So, so that that was sort of Diadrio's position at a, at, at a high level. Uh, SAP's position was strict letter of law. It was you have in this license a number of named users. They pay a license per user, and these new customers who are accessing our software, they're not named users. So therefore, if they're not named users, uh, you're not allowed to do it, uh, or, or perhaps the more commercially, what they're saying is you've got to pay extra fees for those. And suddenly, each customer who's accessing it, Diageo has to pay per customer uh, uh, an extra fee. So do you, uh, I forget the, the lady's name, but there's a lady o overseeing the whole case. Do you think this is a clear-cut case? Was first question. Second question, do you think it's a landmark case for SAP to pursue other uh, arrangements like this with other customers? Okay, so the judge, the judge uh, is a very respected judge, Mrs. Justice O'Farrell. Um, she's a well-respected judge in the Technology and Construction Court. When you read the judgment, you see exactly why she came to her uh, decision. Uh, the, the the license was pretty clear. Only named users could use uh, the SAP software. And uh, Diageo was allowing a new group of users, namely customers, and to some extent sales staff using the CRM software, who had never before uh, been named users. Uh, and whilst there was some quite sort of clever technical arguments by Diageo. In reality, this new, these new categories of users were not named users under the license. So she gave pretty short shrift to Diageo's arguments uh, and said, no, sorry, these new groups of customers are not named users and therefore they're not allowed to use the software. Or, or, or as I say, they've got to pay extra fees for it. Um, so. To that extent, there was also arguments about whether or not they were accessing the software, uh, which I have to say I'm not at all surprised Diageo lost that because plainly the customers were accessing the SAP software. The fact that they were accessing it via um, uh, what I would call third-party software um, uh, products, uh, which had interfaces with the SAP software, of course doesn't really make any difference. The software is still being used. It doesn't really matter how many APIs I go through to get to that software. If I'm accessing that software, it's processing it, then I'm obviously using that software. So to me, the, the, the judgment uh, was not, uh, when one reads it, there was, to be more precise, the result was not at all surprising. Indeed, to some extent, I'm quite surprised it went to court. But the wider ramifications is that these types of licenses which are per user in the new modern world that we live in with the internet of things, mobile access and all other types of access have a real capability of generating very much more substantial license fees than traditional methods of access. 
And that, I think, is uh, something of concern to the wider industry and to licensees. And one rather hopes that if there is suitably uh, uh, parity of bargaining power, that the industry will uh, start shopping around for software licenses if it's to be done on a per-user basis. One of the problems about a lot of this is a lot of these license agreements are quite are, are legacy license agreements. They weren't fit for purpose for the modern, highly connected world that we live in. And in the traditional licensing model, in traditional te uh, uh, technology, maybe 20 years ago, these problems just wouldn't have occurred. But now, you know, anybody can access software by a, a number of means. Your fridge can access software. Your mobile can access software. And, and to some extent, these are new money opportunities for, for, for software publishers. But speaking to end users about this case, um, again, and just to reiterate, none of the people that we speak to at the ITAM Review, with the very odd exception, uh, but the vast majority of people are very happy to pay the likes of SAP for the software, but they just want clarity over what it is they have to pay so then they can do the mechanics and pay the right bill. And the, the issue, I think, with this case is that even though Diageo have been through this process, the area of what is indirect access and what isn't indirect access and are we just touching data or are we manipulating data or, you know, blah, 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 uh, it still remains unclear. And, I mean, is there an industry standard for what indirect access is? And is, is, there, is there any case for um, um, defending that? And another, another point um, that's brought up with end users is that um, they have to guess uh, what, they have to make their own interpretation of a license because it's either unclear from SAP uh, or it's not, it's not been defined. And it's not been certainly not been defined in the contract. So I, th I think that's a little bit happened with this Diageo case in that Diageo had in their mind what they were allowed to do and went ahead and did it without a contractual, um, uh, you know, blessing from SAP. So, so th there's a lot of uh, murkiness that remains around this, isn't there? Yeah, there there is a lot of murkiness. I have to say that I, I now negotiate on behalf of my clients um, uh, quite a lot of contracts. One of the things I do is not just draft contracts, I actually get involved in the negotiation stage. And I have to say, I'm always amazed in IT licenses and IT contracts, um, particularly uh, when one gets a contract from the other side, just how unclear and unfit for the modern world many of these types of uh, licenses are. One of the problems is often that the sort of, uh, there's a pro forma license which is used uh, it doesn't get much legal overview, legal oversight, particularly by somebody who's technologically uh, able and competent. Uh, and therefore, there is murkiness because one of the problems, and this is the case in this particular case, is how do these sorts of traditional types of licenses apply to new technological paradigms? And that was fundamentally the problem in this case, is that it didn't really deal with uh, the new type of uses which we see in the 21st century, uh, particularly where customers buy various third-party software products are interfacing with the licensed software. So 
I, I totally agree with you that there is a lot of murkiness. All I can say is, is that, particularly for uh, customers who are entering into a license on a per-user basis, uh, that you know, please do get this looked over uh, by somebody with technical experience and legal background to make sure that you're covering uh, the situation. I mean, I know one case, uh, which is in the, the United States, where the whole dispute revolved around uh, where people accessed from a mobile phone the software through effectively uh, a server owned by the licensee, did that mean that there was uh, however many mobile phone users, possibly millions, uh, per user royalty fee, or was it really uh, a one license fee because it came through the server? Um, and I think what the Diageo case shows is that in the modern world in the 21st century, the per-user basis within a large company is really not truly fit for purpose. It obviously benefits the software publishers, but people should be trying to get a more fit-for-purpose method of, of payment of license fees. Um, you know, the per-user basis is really right for extra levying of charges simply based upon technical innovation, which allows different people to access using different forms of uh, platforms. So two two things that we've uh, found as a result of this uh, discussion during SAP uh, is almost as a, as a defense against this, and I'd love to get your feedback. So f final question really is, uh, one approach is um, negotiate indirect claims at a later stage out of the contract. So if I'm buying a new uh, user agreement with SAP that you put in a clause there that says you're not going to come after me for indirect access later. I don't know how realistic that is, but we, we hear from other uh, SAP customers that they've done that. So it's almost a, a, a risk mitigation. Uh, when the uh, the salesman is you know foaming at the mouth ready to close the deal, sometimes you can put that sort of thing in. And the other approach is to only sign an agreement based on your specific environment. So, Mr. SAP, this is what we plan to do. This is how we plan to architect our systems, and we're going to license it on this basis. And you agree, uh, which seems quite an expense. I imagine that's quite expensive from a from a legal point of view to do that. Um, is that in the absence of clarity from SAP, is that the way to do things, or is, it, is there another way? Well, firstly. I'm a great believer in negotiating terms. Often people feel they just have to accept them. But the reality is, in most areas of software, there are always alternative providers. And uh, these salesmen from these big companies are desperate for your business. Their commission relies upon it. Uh, and they uh, will often bring some leverage on the legal people to allow amendments to it. What I would say to a lot of customers, uh, a lot of license, potential licensees, is try and focus on the degree of use of the software as a benchmark for payment of fee, rather than a rather artificial distinction as to how many users are there. Now, this, this may not be something which the software publishers are prepared to provide, but you know, the Diageo case is a classic case. The level of use of the software 
didn't increase, but the number of users did. And that worked to the disadvantage of Diageo because the license stru fee structure was per user and not per amount of use. The second thing I would say is, yes, do try and make sure the licenses fit for your technological model. There's no question about it, including the potential of indirect access. But do remember that we live in a fast-moving world, and there are all different types of access which is going to be made to that software, different types of uh, uh, um, uh, different categories of users who may suddenly want to or access it, which weren't envisaged before. So try and come up with a, a, a sort of formula or a clause or a series of clauses which deal with new ways of accessing software, particularly indirect, and, 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 and say to these software publishers, um, look, we could suddenly have a lot more people accessing this directly, indirectly via software, third-party software product. We need to come up with a formula to deal with that so that A, it is licensed use, and B, that there is a fair and equitable method of remuneration for that, uh, rather than giving you a windfall on licensees simply because of new types of access by new categories of people. And I do think that that is um, a, a model which is much fairer. It's fair to the software house because it's really looking at the amount of use. And I think it's fair to the licensee. Um, that requires a degree of deep thought, good drafting um, by the lawyers to make sure that windfalls in the future won't suddenly occur, particularly ones which uh, result, as in the Diageo's case, as a result of the, actually the licensee trying to save money. In Diageo's case, they were trying to save money by uh, allowing customers to bypass call centers, uh, uh, which obviously has the effect of uh, reducing the number of staff which they might have in a call center. So yes, one's got to think inevitably about where is my business now? Where might it be in 10, 20 years time? And making sure that the license is very clear on its terms as to the payment structure for new types of use. So Guy, thank you very much. It's been very interesting talking to you about the, the Diageo case and people can come and meet you at our UK conference again this year. So thank you very much again for supporting us. Uh, if people want to approach you directly, what's the best way of getting hold of you via the Hogarth Chambers website or email? What, yeah. What's the preferred way of getting hold of you? People want to get hold of me. To be honest, the easiest way is just to Google my name, Guy okay. Tritton. Uh, I'm all over the the web. Um, please access me via Hogarth Chambers. Uh, uh, and as I say, I'm licensed to do public access, so I can instruct. I can take instructions directly from uh, businesses directly without going through a solicitor. And uh, what I tend to do is have a Sort of informal half an hour, one hour chat, see if I'm the right person for them. Uh, and that I tend to offer for free. And then if we feel that there's something which I can add of value to their business in the way of provision of legal services, uh, then we can move to a more formal engagement. Perfect. Thank you very much, Guy, for your time. And we look forward to seeing you at the conference. Join us at our annual conferences in London, Florida and Sydney to learn everything you need to know about ITAM in the cloud era. For more details, head to itassetmanagement.net forward slash events.